I'm John Fia, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? Hey, let's start with a game. It's called America or Jesus. I'm going to give you a couple quotations, and each quotation has a blank in it. You guess which word America or Jesus goes in the blank. All right, here we go. Blank is the world's best last hope. Blank is the world's best last hope. America or Jesus? I hope you said America because that's the right answer. Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, Beto O'Rourke all said that. All right, here's another one. Blank is the savior of the world. America or Jesus? Well, again, America is the right answer. That statement was made by President Woodrow Wilson. You can keep playing America or Jesus over on our blog at choosetruthovertribe.com. These quotations, they make us ask the question, is it possible that we might have conflated or even confused our country and our faith? I really wanted to figure out, when did this fusion between God and government start, and why did it start? And how does knowing about it in our past help shed light on our current moment? So I reached out to one of the premier historians of early American history, a professor named John Fia. In our discussion, we get into some really important questions. Was America founded as a Christian nation? What is Christian nationalism? Is it bad that American evangelicals turned out in big numbers to support Donald Trump? How should we think about our nation's very imperfect history? And specifically, should we be removing statues of historical figures? John Fia has written several books, but the ones relevant to our conversation today are Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? and Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump. Okay, let's go. John Fia, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. A couple years ago, I felt like I needed to try to answer this question, Is America a Christian Nation? And so I just started looking for books of people I respected, and they kept referring me to your book, which the title of it is essentially asking that question. It's, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? And in that book, you indicate that's kind of a hard question to answer. It kind of depends on what you mean by a Christian nation. Can you walk us through the different ways to think about America as a Christian nation and help us try to answer that question? Well, first of all, this whole question, was America founded as a Christian nation, is something that hasn't been asked a lot in American history until only recently, probably within the last 40 or 50 years. It's a question that gets asked 
people start to ask it in the late 1970s and 1980s when there are certain conservative evangelical Christians who believe that American culture is under threat by the influence of secularism or liberalism or the 1960s movements to kind of remove prayer or Bible reading from public schools or Roe versus Wade or the influx of non-Christian immigrants into the country that arrive after the 1965 Immigration Act. So the culture is changing. The demographics of the culture is changing. Demographics of the country, I should say, is changing. And there becomes for the first time this debate over whether or not America is or was a Christian nation. So today, as the debate goes, if you want to play with this and you want to kind of have this conversation, there's all kinds of ways to identify America as a Christian nation, which makes this, again, a very complicated issue, as you mentioned. I mean, you have pure demographics. If you go by pure demographics in terms of the amount of people who identify as Christians, whether it be mainline Protestants, evangelicals, Catholics, Orthodox Christians, certainly we're Christians nation. We're still overwhelmingly Christian. That number has been shrinking of late. Again, mostly kind of from people in this category known as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, but we're still demographically. The other way to address this is to look at the documents of our founding. Did they try to put forth some kind of idea of America as a Christian nation? That would be another way to do this. You're talking about the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, Constitution, Declaration of Independence, Articles of Confederation, the state constitutions that were created during this time. Wasn't there like a debate between the North and the South you lay out that the South was saying, this is back in the Civil War, we're going to put God more prominently in our founding documents than appear in the nation's, the Union's founding documents? This is one side trying to trump the other over who is the more Christian nation. I don't think this was a debate over which side was Christian and which one wasn't as much as who was the true and honest Christian side. There's this example of the Confederacy who believe that because they own slaves and the slavery is not condemned in the Bible, because they have invested in the Christianization of their slaves, the Christianization of their culture, they add in the preamble to their constitution, which is created in 1861, shortly after secession, that they use the word almighty God. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but it's very similar to the preamble of the U.S. Constitution. We, the people, in order to form a more perfect union under almighty God is the way that the Confederacy uses it. And then they politicize this. They use it to say, how can the North say that God is on their side in the war when we have God in our Constitution? I say in the book, the book you referenced, I said, this so bothers some Northern ministers that they actually create an entire organization known as the National Reform Association. This was the NRA before the NRA. (laughs) The intent goal of the National Reform Association was to add an amendment to the Constitution saying that we were a Christian nation because these ministers are so tired of getting attacked by Southerners who are saying the North are infidels and so forth. So this debate goes on, this conversation goes on about what it means to be a Christian nation. But I think these debates are kind of what we might call intramural debates within a larger playing field, if you will, or under a larger umbrella, and I know I'm mixing metaphors here, of the idea that, of course, we're a Christian nation. What kind of Christian nation are we and what does that look like? 
So if I understood what you said earlier, I think you said, but I might have this wrong, that in the last, say, 50, 60 years, people have been asking this question, is America a Christian nation? But up until that time, people would have assumed that we were driven by Christian principles. Is that correct? They may not have necessarily thought that that was a good idea, but they would have certainly had to admit it. I'll give you an example of this. Maybe about five or six years ago, I was up in Rhode Island doing a panel on the 350th anniversary of Roger Williams's famous religious liberty treaties that he wrote. This was Roger Williams was the founder of Rhode Island, a great early champion of religious liberty. And it was an ecumenical panel. I was an evangelical on it. I was kind of the token evangelical historian. There was a historian of Judaism. There was a secular author of a biography of Roger Williams, who was not particularly invested at all in Williams's ideas, but was just interested in him. And I made this assertion that I just made to you, that America has always been a Christian nation. And the Jewish scholar said, of course, if anyone knows that America has always culturally been a Christian nation, it's a Jew. We get Christmas off. We get Christian holidays off. So I think that's what I'm saying. Now, again, he maybe didn't like that. The fact that it was a Christian nation, he wanted more pluralism. But this is a historical statement I'm making that historically, most people living, whether they were Christian or not, realized they were in a Christian nation. And if they did not believe that it was a Christian nation, they were in a very, very small minority. So the way I think about it, and I'm hoping you'll correct me if I've got this wrong, is that America as a nation became more self-identified or their vision of themselves became more identified with Christianity in the 1950s, that there was this marriage between Christianity and government to form this kind of Christian civil religion. If I have that right, what was it in the 1950s that happened that created this marriage between faith and the church and government? Yeah, I would probably phrase it a little bit differently, but you're right. But I would probably just suggest that the 1950s was a kind of enhancement of a sign of American civil religion that had already existed through much of the 19th century. It was the logical extension of American civil religion that America was a Christian nation. But you're right. There is a break. There is a shift. Something different is going on after World War II. It's in the 1950s, for example, that the United States puts in God we trust on paper money. It had already been on coins since the Civil War. It's during the 1950s where the words under God are placed in the Pledge of Allegiance. Dwight D. Eisenhower is this model of what it means to be a Christian statesman. And I think what's unique in the 1950s is there becomes kind of diplomatic and foreign policy and global reasons to kind of double down on America's Christian identity. And that is the Cold War. The threat of, I don't know about you, I grew up growing up in evangelical communities. The word godless communism was one word. (laughs) There was no break. The godless communists, no one even paused in between. The threat of an atheistic Soviet Union that we're in a Cold War with, it is a way in which the United States can distinguish themselves as a God-fearing Christian nation against their global enemies in this sense. So I think much of the emphasis on Christian America, moreover, you also see businesses. There's a wonderful book by a historian, Princeton historian named Kevin Cruz, called Under God, in which he argues that the corporate world teamed up with 
many on the conservative Christians, especially evangelicals, to bring the free market capitalism and the pro-business agenda into conversation with Christianity. In other words, God is the author of freedom, the freedom not only to have political freedom and rights, but also to have free markets. And of course, that is also laid out in contradistinction, if you will, to the communism, the socialism of the Soviet Union. I think you're right. There is a moment. I just see more continuity between the 1950s and the past. There is a break there where in the 1950s, something happens. And I think you're right about about that. What we see, I guess, in the 50s is a rise in church membership, in God we trust, under God added to the Pledge of Allegiance. Eisenhower is the first and I believe only president baptized while he is in office. And I think national prayer breakfasts start in the 1950s. And so there's this marriage between government and the church, largely in an attempt to fight against the godless communists, like you said. I think you make a good point that perhaps that's more of a continuation than I was alluding to, and yet something coalesces there around America being a Christian nation. Now, that doesn't last long because in the early 60s, you get the Supreme Court saying that we can't pray in schools, we can't read the Bible in schools, and of course, the social revolution, cultural revolution that happens in the 1960s. I think taking a longer view of this, I think back to your first question, you see these debates about whether or not we're a Christian nation or not, usually, or at least the assertion of the fact that we're a Christian nation, whether it's a debate or not, spike during times of intense kind of change and pressure. So the Cold War, there's a reason why after the tumultuous 60s that you just talked about, this question emerges again. There's a reason why in the 1850s, Protestants are talking about America as a Protestant nation because of the massive influx of Catholics into the country. So there are these moments historically when this rhetoric of Christian nationhood or the idea that we're a Christian nation tends to spike. And I just wanted to point that out. I think that's a perfect segue into where I want to go next, which is the presidency of Donald Trump. And so he creates this slogan, Make America Great Again, MAGA. I don't know exactly who was in the room when that slogan was created. I don't know how much time and attention was paid to each word. I think most people focus on the word great. But I think the most interesting word is the word again, and it makes it a historian's question. Make America Great Again kind of assumes there was a time in the past when America was a better nation than we are today, a time that we want to go back to. You said that people assert the Christian founding of the country at certain key moments. And I don't know if Make America Great Again is the same thing as Make America Christian Again or not, but... As a historian, do you think there was a time in America's history that we were a better nation than we are today? That's a great question. Real quick, some context on that. Ronald Reagan used to say, I want to make America great again all the time. But for some reason, it didn't. He didn't put it on a hat. That's why. (laughs) Yeah, Trump made it his predominant campaign slogan. So it's not a new slogan in American politics, but it's certainly, again, back to the moment of Trump. Yeah, the question you ask me, and you're definitely right. I've been saying this ever since Trump. In that phrase, make America great again, again, I tend to zero in on the word again. That's how I'm trained to think. 
this question of greatness in the past or even goodness in the past or American morality or whatever you want to talk about, I think is not really a historical question. I think it's a complicated one. And what I mean by that is, as a historian, I tend to approach this as you tell me, I'm not saying you particularly, but the people who use Make America Great Again, you tell me when America was great. Was it the 1950s? Was it the 18th century? Was it the, I don't know. This is how I like to approach this. Tell me when America was great. And then let's bring in people who are ethicists or moralists or biblical scholars or cultural critics or historians, a bunch of people. And then let's talk about the moral question. You want to take the 1950s. I think you could make a pretty compelling argument that in the 1950s, the coarseness of our culture, whether it be the easy access to pornography or the violence on television or the vulgar language, these kinds of things, I think weren't there. And I think there's a sense in which I think it's a legitimate Christian response to say, like, we went downhill. We're going downhill on that front. On the other hand, I remember saying this exact same thing to a group of people where a significant number in the room were African-Americans who said, I get that, but I don't want to go back. White people tend to be nostalgic for that 1950s home movie of the 4th of July picnic or something. I kid around. My mom likes to show me. We watch these old films of growing up in the 1970s. Everything looks so happy. You know, oh, man, if we could just get back to the good old days. And then my mom continues to go on and says things like, oh, there's Uncle Joe and whatever, right before they got divorced. Oh, there's Uncle. <laughs> you know, oh, this must have been right before he got cancer. You know, I'm like, mom, shut up. You're taking away my nostalgic longings. But you bring up a good point because we have this romantic view of the past, a nostalgic view of the past, rose-colored glasses. And I guess it depends on who you are, who your grandparents were, great-grandparents were, whether you want to go back. Because in the 1950s, we've talked about how there's this marriage between the church and state in a new and powerful way. And yet, Black people didn't have the legal right to vote, that we were still living under Jim Crow laws. If you're a woman in the 1950s, you had far fewer opportunities than you have today. So Christians tend to be nostalgic. How far do you want to go back if you're a woman? Seriously. What did it look like for you in those golden days? So I think in some ways, this Make America Great Again plays on that kind of white nostalgia. I think nostalgia is a very narcissistic way of understanding the past because when you're nostalgic, it's usually you're nostalgic for something that is memorable to you. And people who are nostalgic about the past, as opposed to, say, historians who engage the past, are not thinking about their own experience in the context of the way others are experiencing. And I think thinking about others and their plight is a healthy and Christian response to the past, as opposed to this narcissistic, well, it was good for me, I don't care about anyone else. So let's stay on this topic of how we should think about our past. When George Floyd was killed by the police officer in Minneapolis, who was later convicted of second-degree murder, there was wide-ranging protests, and certain statues were torn down. There's still a call today for more statues to either be torn down or taken into a museum, but taken out of public view. And of course, that's an intense debate, depending on who you're talking about. 
clearly our country has a very imperfect past. And as we look back on history, we tend to judge those who went before us. I think a lot of times, rightly so. And yet, I'm realistic enough to know that future generations perhaps will look back on us and judge us. And so how do we wrestle with the past? You're a historian. How should we wrestle with the past when it comes to these statues? How should we think about the statues that we want to remove without becoming kind of self-righteous critics who feel like now we've arrived and we're the perfect generation and we've got it all figured out? There are no easy answers to these questions. My counsel to people who ask me questions like this is you need to take each individual statue or monument on its own terms. I always get a little upset when I see kind of sweeping changes. San Francisco recently tried to change the name of schools. They had Abraham Lincoln on the list (laughs) and George Washington, Thomas Jefferson. It depends on the individual situation. Now, as a general principle, I think Confederate monuments When you know the history of Confederate monuments, these monuments, as you may know, or your listeners may know, were erected in the early 20th century. They were deliberately designed and erected by racist pro-Confederate groups that wanted to celebrate white supremacy over black rights. I would even argue that those should not be destroyed. They should be contextualized or perhaps, again, you mentioned, put in some other place. But those kinds of monuments are direct, in-your-face, visual assaults on the African-American community. We could debate on exactly what to do with them, but we have to start with the fact that when an African-American, a Black man or woman is driving in New Orleans or Richmond, and they drive past Robert E. Lee, and they know the history, that is offensive. So I think that has to be taken into consideration. Now, you have others. I would judge a monument. I think one of the things historians do is they talk about the complexity of the human experience. You pointed this out. As a Christian, one cannot think about American history without an acknowledgement, and I think a very robust view of human sin. Where do we stop is the question you often hear. I do think that complex individuals like Thomas Jefferson, who owned slaves, but also contributed to the founding of the United States and to kind of the world with his statute on religious liberty and the Declaration of Independence even. These are complex figures who were known for more than just racism or white supremacy or treason to their country in the case of Robert E. Lee. The same goes with Washington. The same goes with Lincoln. I think there's this false perception out there that those monuments are equivalent to history. We are erasing history. No, these monuments provide opportunities, I think. They're almost like mirrors. We look at them, we see the good, we see the bad, and we see, therefore, the grace of God would have gone I or God may have empowered me to do heroic acts like this person. Yeah, I think that's good. I recently heard Condoleezza Rice, the former Secretary of State, say that, in her opinion, the monuments shouldn't be taken down, but they should provide context for a discussion about how did these get here and what do they represent about our country's history. But someone like Thomas Jefferson, in our own community here at the University of Missouri, there is a debate about whether a monument to Jefferson should be removed. Clearly, that monument wasn't put there to celebrate 
the negatives of Jefferson, his slaveholding, his abuse of Sally Hemings. Clearly, that was put there to commemorate the contributions he made to the founding of the country. So I appreciate your answer. These people are complex people. And unfortunately, our culture right now doesn't deal very well with complexity. I'll just throw this out real quick. If you're worried about erasing history, I would say the real place where history is being erased, I'll just throw this out there, is in our schools as people cease funding for history education and so forth. That's where history is being erased. Let's talk about that instead of these politically charged debates over monuments. If you're like me and you leave each episode with a lot to think about and wishing you could go just a little bit deeper, you should subscribe to the Truth Over Tribe newsletter. Not only do we explore the topic further, but we also interact with people who disagree with us and tell you about upcoming episodes. Just go to choosetruthovertribe.com and sign up for the newsletter there. In your other book that I loved called Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, you go back in history and kind of share the historical path that led to 80% of white evangelicals. And I know there's debate about that number, but it's close enough. White evangelicals voting for Donald Trump. Now, one of my reactions to that is it's not necessarily new. I mean, white evangelicals have been voting Republican in high numbers since Ronald Reagan. So when did evangelicals start becoming identified with the Republican Party? Is that something that has been true for decades, or is that relatively recent? Again, this goes back to sort of our earlier conversation. I think there becomes this alliance between the GOP and conservative evangelicals, at least. It really begins with Ronald Reagan. There's a deep history here. Jimmy Carter in 1976, a Democrat, openly declared himself to be a born-again Christian. I mean, many evangelical Christians love this. They voted for him. Significant numbers of evangelicals voted Democratic in 1976. Jimmy Carter let them down on a variety of fronts. One, he was unwilling to fight the culture war over abortion. He personally opposed abortion, but he defended Roe versus Wade, the right of a woman to choose. He also was willing to support a Supreme Court ruling that made white academies in the South, these are Christian schools in the South, as well as a university, Bob Jones University, to desegregate or else lose tax-exempt status. Well, this was viewed as Jimmy Carter kind of working with the levers of big government to intrude in the religious beliefs of people who wanted to segregate. Jimmy Carter had his failures diplomatically with the Iran hostage crisis and so forth. Carter also called people to sacrifice during the energy crisis. And most evangelicals did not want to do that. Ronald Reagan offered freedom. He offered more liberty. He offered no big government interfering. He came just short of saying government shouldn't even interfere in segregated academies. He launched his campaign in 1980 in a town in Mississippi, the name's escaping me right now, which had experienced multiple deaths of Black civil rights people. The cues were all there. And then Reagan came during the campaign to a gathering in Dallas of the National Religious Broadcasters, which was sponsored by leading lights within the conservative evangelical movement like Jerry Falwell, D. James Kennedy, James Robeson, and others, and essentially said, you can't endorse me, 
but I endorse you. That sort of began the relationship with the GOP. George H.W. Bush, he wasn't too keen on working closely with evangelicals, although evangelicals voted for him. And then the anti-liberal or Christian right really was solidified in the 1990s in opposition to Bill Clinton. And then George W. Bush, a self-professed born-again Christian. So it's been going on since the 80s. What's interesting to me about all of this is the Christian right in the 70s and late 70s and early 80s with this Reagan era, they developed a political playbook, I call it. The political playbook went something like this, and all of your listeners are aware of it. Vote for the right president who will appoint the right Supreme Court justices, vote for the senators who will confirm those justices, will overturn Roe versus Wade, will protect religious liberty. Later on, we'll use the courts to fight for marriage, all of these things. And there were some wins and some losses along the way. But that political playbook, how a Christian should engage in politics until 2016, was always tied to what most white evangelicals believed was a person of character. So whatever one thinks of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, Bob Dole, George W. Bush, John McCain, Mitt Romney, these were the GOP candidates. Whatever you think about these men, white evangelicals believe they were men of character who upheld the institutions of the office. They were moral people. I would say most evangelicals, even if they voted for Donald Trump, would have said that he was not a man of character, at least someone who reflected their faith and their beliefs. So this is where you see the switch happening. I mean, as a historian and you're looking back, if I understand you right, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think what you're saying is that evangelical Christians and Republicans joined together in the 80s, but evangelical Christians could tell themselves, we're voting for people of character. Now, with Donald Trump, now all of a sudden, several, what you would end up calling court evangelicals in your book, they flipped. And you're suggesting that what they revealed is that they were really about the power, that they wanted to be in the room kind of where it happened, and that their willingness to jump in bed with the president without the character of the previous candidates said something about themselves. Yeah, put it this way. In 2016, for the first time since the 70s, the playbook and the candidate were at odds. And evangelicals chose the playbook, which is a playbook driven by three things, I argued, and believe me, fear of change, the pursuit of power, which you just described very nicely, and what we talked about earlier, this kind of MAGA mentality, this nostalgic longing for, and this goes back to the beginning of our podcast, our interview here, the, that nostalgic longing for a return to a Christian America. Here's my problem with all of this is that if you're an evangelical in 2016 or 2020, what do you do in the general election? So personally, I didn't vote for either candidate in 2016 or in 2020. I didn't feel comfortable putting down my vote for either one, although I think voting is really important, and I voted for all the other candidates in issues on the ballot. I just didn't feel like either candidate had earned my vote. I couldn't do it in good conscience. But here you're an evangelical. You feel like voting is important. You go to the poll, and you have two candidates, neither of which measure up to your standards. So what I've said is that I can 
kind of respect or understand how an evangelical goes to the polls in 2016 and 2020 and holds his or her nose and votes for either one, Clinton, Trump, Trump, Biden. I get it. In fact, I have lots of friends who did both. What I didn't understand is how any evangelical Christian could go to the polls enthusiastically supporting Trump, Clinton, or Biden. But after reading Believe Me, I'm not sure that I know your take on this. What were evangelicals supposed to do? Should they have voted for Hillary? Should they abstain? Should they have voted for Trump? It feels like you're criticizing them, but I don't know what the options were. Obviously, we've gotten this question a lot. And again, like all this, it's not an easy answer. Here's how I would take it. I don't expect others to agree with me. Some may, but I'll throw it out there how I would respond to that question. First of all, on the question of voting, you're absolutely correct. As an American historian, to me, I know the fight and the battle that it took to give people the right to vote. When Susan B. Anthony and the women's rights movement, for just for example, was fighting for the right to vote, they weren't fighting for the right to, well, you have to choose the lesser of two evils. They weren't fighting for like these calculations that we make. Well, if I vote for Trump, it's if I vote for Hillary or don't vote, it's technically a vote for Trump. All these calculations we make, that does not reflect the history of voting rights reform in this country. You vote for a candidate that you believe best reflects your views and understanding of America. In 2016, I have libertarian friends who voted for Gary Johnson. I have progressive evangelical friends who actually voted for Jill Stein, the Green candidate. Some wrote in Evan McMullen, this Utah senator. And some voted for Hillary and some voted for Trump. So I, I voted for Kanye. Or Kanye. Yeah, Kanye. <laughs> in 2020. 2020. <laughs> so that's, I think, the first premise. But the question, your question and the question that I'm also asked also has a certain presupposition to it. It has a philosophical presupposition. And that is that somehow American culture is going to be redeemed. Our world is going to be better. We're going to change the world through politics. And thus, whoever we vote for we're somehow exercising the role of the church in kind of changing the world. So I think it plays into the idea that the answer is politics. And it excuses many evangelicals from letting the church be the agent of change in the world. So let me give you an example of this. Let's just go right for the big issue, the abortion issue. If you care about abortion and you care about reducing the number of abortions, and I tend to be a realist on this, I'm not sure Roe v. Wade is going to get over, at least this is what I thought in 2016. Now things have changed in the last few months. I don't think Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned anytime soon. And even if Roe versus Wade is overturned, that does not end abortion in the United States. Simply, you're going to have half the states, like the big states, California, New York, and so forth, still allowing abortion. You're going to have Texas and others, maybe Missouri, forbidding abortion. What will reduce the number of abortions then in that situation? Do I invest in a candidate that's simply going to overturn Roe versus Wade and make that my primary reason, like many Christian leaders did in voting for Donald Trump? Or do I think about a more complex way of viewing the world Christianly? Do poverty programs, do care for unwed mothers, do family leave programs? 
will these programs reduce? We know the largest percentage of people who get abortions are African-American women. What are we doing to deal with systemic racism? What are we doing to deal with the fact that they don't have access to crisis pregnancy centers and counseling and so forth? To me, that's a pro-life position. I am pro-life. I think as a Christian, I have to be. That's my stand. But can I be pro-life and still believe that Roe v. Wade, overturning Roe v. Wade is not going to be the answer to solving the problem of abortion in the United States. If you think that way, and you don't think that perhaps politics is the answer to solving problems of abortion, or maybe you do think politics might be a good way of solving abortion, but you don't think the Republican strategy is worthwhile, this may shape your vote. But I think the presupposition behind the question is, well, who do I vote for is, you vote for the person that's closest to your convictions, your well thought out convictions, and you keep working as a Christian for meaningful change in the places where God has placed you. I agree with you that this abortion issue is complicated. And while I am very much pro-life, I'm not a single issue voter, nor do I advocate for that. But I think, and you kind of alluded to this, I think someone who did vote for former President Trump because of pro-life convictions would say to you, hey, turns out it went pretty well. There are now more Supreme Court justices on the court who look like they are going to at least cut back, if not overturn Roe v. Wade. And that will help save more lives in more parts of the country, not the whole country, but like you said, maybe half the country. And why not employ the government to protect human life? We didn't try to solve racism just by looking into people's hearts. We used laws to enact the Voting Rights Act, Fair Housing Act, to provide equality for people of all races. So why shouldn't we do that in the case of unborn life? People are going to make different calculations on that front. I think the recent law in Texas I think it's a terrible law simply because of the vigilante dimension of it, where people can go sue people for having abortions. On the other hand, it will save until it gets struck down. It will save lives. I have kind of mixed feelings on that. I think mixed feelings is totally appropriate about the abortion issue. Again, it's complicated. But let's say that 80% of evangelicals had voted for Hillary Clinton. Would you have felt the need to write a book explaining, hey, how did we get to this point? that 80% of white evangelicals supported this particular candidate, or no? It's a hypothetical question that kind of is sort of detached from reality in some ways. I'm not saying you're detached from reality, but the question is... (laughs) I might be. (laughs) So I guess I would respond that if 80% of evangelicals suddenly voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016, someone should write a book about that because the historic trajectory has been such that this would be like amazing. It would need to be explained, I think, much in the same way that it needed to be explained why so many white evangelicals decided to throw their hat into a guy who has the character of someone like Donald Trump. And we won't sort of get into all the details on that. So yeah, I think certainly would find that interesting to write a book about that. Whether I would be interested in doing it is another case, but someone should We'll get back to the episode in just a moment. But today, I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. 
If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families. So let's switch gears again and pick up this conversation that's been on the rise about Christian nationalism ever since the January 6th, and if you want to call it an attack or riot, whatever, in Washington, D.C. on the Capitol, that word, Christian nationalism, has been used more frequently, at least I hear it more often. Can you give us a good working definition of Christian nationalism is it simply someone who thinks of America as being founded as a Christian nation, or is it more than that? Yeah, you're right about the sort of recent popularity of this phrase. So 10 years ago, when I was writing my book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? This phrase was not popular. People didn't use it. But this has become a thing, largely because I think of the work of some sociologists who have written about this this idea. And also some journalists have really brought it up. Religion writers on the left, people like Sarah Posner, and I'm blanking on the name of the other one who I've actually interviewed. I think in the book you're talking about, the sociologists yes, are Andrew Whitehead, Perry. Samuel Perry, yeah, and their Samuel book, Perry. Taking America Back for God. And they gave sort of the academic credibility to a lot of the things that these journalists are writing. There have been people at organizations, People for the United Way, who puts out a... People for the American Way? The American Way, I'm sorry. Yeah, Right Wing Watch, who have been talking about this all for years and this kind of dominionism. So how would I define this? I think when people use the term Christian nationalism today... They're obviously talking about people who believe that the United States was not only founded as a Christian nation, but somehow lost its way and now want to go back and reclaim America as a Christian nation, renew America as a Christian nation. And their politics and their political behavior is often motivated by a view of America that needs to be returned or restored to its Christian roots. So I think Christian nationalism is not only a historical reality, but it's also a now a clear-cut kind of political motivation or political movement that informs, I think, much of the support that Donald Trump got within the evangelical community in 2016 and 2020. And of course, the people on more the political left want to characterize more and more evangelicals as part of this Christian nationalist movement that maybe through violence or other means are going to try to return 
the country to these Christian roots. And they used hyperbolic language, as media often does, to say that they're looking to establish a theocracy or something like that. What I found when I read Taking Back America for God by Andrew Whitehead and Samuel Perry was that while there is definitely overlap between evangelicals and Christian nationalists, there's also a lot of Christian nationalists who don't even go to church. They're not part of any. They claim to be evangelicals, but they're not in any meaningful way. And there's a lot of evangelicals who don't think of themselves as Christian nationalists, don't advocate for those policies at all. So I guess I'm become concerned that the wrong people are defining what an evangelical is. Has that word changed a lot over the last few years? Do you consider yourself an evangelical? Well, I share some of the same concerns that you have. Let me answer the first part of your question first. I share some of the same concerns as someone who does consider myself an evangelical Christian. I actually prefer to use evangelical as an adjective rather than as a noun, because I think the noun kind of is too politically loaded right now because of what happened with Trump. But back to the point about who's defining these terms, I think very few kind of evangelical Christians, and by the way, very few people who the media and the academics describe as evangelical Christians even use the word evangelical or evangelicalism to describe themselves. I had a student who was one of my sort of assistants found a list of like the largest mega churches in the country. I had her go through the websites in search of the word evangelical. Now, again, according to sociologists, historians, religious scholars, and even the media, these are all evangelical churches, but the word evangelical was never found there. I'm a pastor of a church and we wouldn't use the word evangelical because it's become so controversial and loaded. I always call it semantic overload. Everybody reads into the term what they want, and I don't even know what people mean by it. So if people ask if I'm an evangelical Christian, I go, well, could you define it? And then I'll tell you if I am or not. Let's take the 81% that some have said are all kind of Christian nationalists who voted for Trump. If I had to go back and rewrite Believe Me, I think one of the big faults in Believe Me, one of the big, maybe an error, I call it, or a nuance that I missed, is that that 81%, and I think this has come out in our conversation here, that 81% of people who voted for Donald Trump are a much more nuanced group. There are people in that group who show up at MAGA rallies, who wear the red hat, who are diehard Trumpers. But there are a lot of other people, like maybe our friends, who they voted for Trump for the reasons we talked about, whether it be abortion or whatever, but they're not Trumpists or they're not into Trumpism. I agree. I think that 81%, if that is the number, whatever the number is, it's way too high, in my opinion. But whatever the number is, I think that needs to be nuanced. And I think what People on the left, and I think what many academics, they miss that nuance, they miss that complexity. So evangelicalism in their mind, or they like to use the term white evangelicalism, is associated with Christian nationalism. But your point is exactly right. Not all evangelicals would build a political philosophy around restoring, reclaiming, renewing America as a Christian nation. And I think you're right about some of the evidence suggesting that you're asked at the polls by pollsters, are you a born-again Christian or an evangelical? You're not asked any questions about church attendance or what that means. So I think some of those numbers are probably suspect and need to be deconstructed a little bit. So why do I still cling to this word evangelical? 
one of the best speeches I've ever heard was the writer, Richard Rodriguez, who gave a graduation speech maybe 15 years ago at Kenyon College in Ohio. You can look it up on YouTube. He has this wonderful saying, and to be honest with you, off the top of my head, I can't remember what word he's talking about, but he's talking about a particular word that has meaning to him that has been hijacked and taken over by forces that he disagrees with. And he has this wonderful line where he says, I'm a writer, I'm a thinker, I'm a cultural critic. I want that word back. That's always stuck with me. This is what I apply to as an evangelical. I want that word back because the word means the good news, the gospel the life-transforming power of the gospel, the gospel that as a 16-year-old kid who grew up kind of nominally Christian in embraced, and it transformed my life, and it transformed the trajectory of my life. I want that gospel. That's evangelos. There's a lot of my fellow evangelicals who are in the same position that I am in, especially in light of the discouragement that we feel right now whether it be Trump, whether it be racial issues, whether it be COVID and masking. There's a lot of friends who, in the light of this discouragement, have kind of abandoned ship and says, I can no longer be an evangelical anymore. I'm not in that camp, at least not yet. I want that word back. I want to fight to reclaim that word. I want to reform that word. I want that word to once again have the dignity and power that it means. I love the way you said that, especially because this is the good news that changed your life. This is the good news that brought you hope. This is the good news that you've built your life on. And I think you and I share that it is frustrating to see that word be co-opted by all these other groups. So I will pray for you as you try to reclaim that word. I think part of it too, Keith, is that I'm a convert. I'm an almost adult convert, 16 years old. I remember the kind of aimlessness of my life prior to that. And even as much as we talk about evangelicals as kind of being anti-intellectual and so forth, and the scandal of the evangelical mind, as one historian put it, which I agree with, it was evangelicalism and its commitment to Bible study and reading and inductive treatment of texts. And so that stimulated my mind and set me on a trajectory towards becoming a Christian thinker. So I'm not ready to give that up yet. This is still my tribe, so to speak. But you can't control where your words go after you write them. I wrote Believe Me with a Christian publisher, not to give fuel to those on the secular left who want to co-opt me and say, look, even Fee is against Trump. Look at this. But rather to speak to my group, my tribe, I think in the way that you're trying to do, I think with this podcast, to get them to at least complicate their thinking about and think differently about politics from a Christian point of view. I love hearing you say that because I learned so much from Believe Me, along with your other book I read was America Founded as a Christian Nation. I mean, I learned so much. I read it twice. I gave it to one of my kids who likes to read along with me. I've suggested it to other people. And yet when I finished that book, I think I thought you were embarrassed of your fellow Christians. And if you were, I've been there. And some mornings I wake up and some mornings I watch the news or listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill or whatever it is. And I'm embarrassed of my fellow Christians. But also at the same time, I don't want to be, because the truth is that all the things that are inside of them are inside of me. And so I feel like by critiquing them, I'm critiquing myself in some way. Not that I've done the exact same things or they've done the exact same things as me, but it's inside of me. So 
I guess I'm going to just follow up because of what you just said about your love for the church. Are you embarrassed of the church? It's not a day goes by I'm not embarrassed. The things I see, it's easy to be embarrassed by the kind of MAGA extremism that you see within the church. It's easy to kind of cherry pick the people that make it onto the right wing watch blog site who are saying Moses had a veil, these weird biblical arguments for not wearing a mask. Those are the kind of extremists. I'm often embarrassed by those who seem to be placing a battle for the culture, American culture, over the church as a prophetic witness within the culture. And when you are battling for a culture, you tend to prioritize other things and you start to lose your witness. And you're right, I'm guilty of this myself. If you read my Twitter feed or whatever, but it just embarrasses me that like, how is that going to lead someone to Christ? How is what you're saying right now, even if you may be theologically correct, you're just dividing even further. And I've lost friends over, believe me, I've lost longstanding people in my church who don't talk to me. I've become kind of a lightning rod in those ways. There was a time when I was a new believer 40 years ago, right, where I grew up in New Jersey, a very secular place. And I don't think I ever met an evangelical Christian until... I became one. Right? <laughs> it was mostly Jews and Catholics. When you met another evangelical Christian, you somehow struck up a conversation and you, oh, you're a Christian. I'm, oh, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Like we share, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I see like a fellow Christian in the convenience store getting gas or something like that. And I'm like, are they pro-Trump? What's their view on critical race theory? What are they going to think about if they know that I wrote this about masks or vaccines? In some ways, it breaks my heart. And it's maybe I'm a little nostalgic for an older evangelicalism that's long gone. And I realize probably there's some of that, but I think some of that lament is real. I think we've all seen that the evangelical church has been fracturing, not because of biblical or theological issues, not even based on, say, ministry philosophy of how this church does it or versus that church, but instead because of these cultural and political issues that we've put our political candidate or our hot topics first, like you said, vaccines or masks or CRT or politics, whatever. And somehow we've come to the conclusion that we're going to change the world through politics or that the kingdom of God is going to come without King Jesus, maybe by King Biden or King Trump or King Elephant Donkey. And that's dividing us. And I want to get to a point, and I think you do too, where we have more unity in Christ than we do disunity by all these other topics, that we put on Jesus first and see ourselves as citizens of heaven, brothers and sisters in Christ, first and foremost. I think this requires a much more robust kind of understanding of the role of the church in public life. And I think for too long, the church has mirrored the culture. So take, for example, there's a wonderful book by an intellectual historian that most of your listeners wouldn't kind of encounter called The Age of Fracture by Daniel Rogers. And what he argues is America has been fracturing as a whole ever since like the 1980s with his emphasis on individualism. He kind of blames it on the Reagan era a little bit. But this fracturing of the culture is taking place and social media has exacerbated that because now everybody has an opinion. And of course, rather than resisting this kind of focus on fractured individualism and disunity, 
the evangelical church, as they often do, is just kind of mirroring the culture. The culture's fracturing, so of course we're fracturing. Why would we provide some kind of new way to the culture? And I think this is a long story that has unpacked about the close relationship between evangelical Christianity and American culture in America. And it goes back to the things we were saying earlier about civil religion and the kind of uncritical embrace that many evangelical churches have had of American civil religion. It turns out civil religion might be attractive, but it's probably not good for the church. It probably hasn't had good fruit. I think there's a lot of good things to say about civil religion. I feel the warm and fuzzies when I go to a 4th of July parade or see the videos about 9-11 or whatever, just like everybody else. I love my country. I'm honored and proud to be an American, but it's not the church. And I love how N.T. Wright unpacks this. The church is always in a position of speaking the truth to the culture. And we've, I think, sadly become co-opted. When we stop being a prophetic voice of truth and start modulating what we say, being careful what we say, because we want to be at the table where the decisions are made, that's a dangerous spot for the church. And unfortunately, there are some Christians, I think they're Christians, they call themselves Christians, who have made that deal, that they have been willing to go with a particular political party and compromise the prophetic witness of Christ, just become another special interest group. There's an old Baptist saying that an old Baptist minister once told me, when you mix horse manure, although he didn't use the word manure, (laughs) when you mix horse manure and vanilla ice cream together, the horse manure stays the same, but the vanilla ice cream is ruined forever. And I think it's a wonderful example of what happens when the church gets involved in politics. <laughs> right, politics stays the same, but right, right. church politics is forever changing. But man, the ice cream is ruined forever. Hey, John Fia, we really appreciate your time with us. You've given us a lot to think about. Where can people find you? Where are you active? Tell us about where to find you. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to do that. I blog every day at a blog called The Way of Improvement Leads Home, which is part of a larger media platform that we've created, me and a couple of friends have created. We're only about six months old, called Current, and the address is currentpub.com. And you can see a daily feature there written by all kinds of people. We have daily daily feature. And then I, on the right, I blog every day. And in my blog, you can find links to my work and all those kinds of things. But currentpub.com. So currentpub.com is where people can find you. I found you through your books, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? And Believe Me, I would highly recommend both. I think they're both challenging and insightful. Hey, John, as we leave, would you pray for the American church, for our faithfulness to Jesus? Sure. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for conversations like this. They're so needed. Lord, in the church right now. Help us to be faithful in the places that you have called us to work for your kingdom, Lord, first and foremost, and to speak the truth in love to our culture. Lord, we pray for the church right now in America. We ask that you would give us clear vision. We ask you for wisdom to deal with the complicated, messy world in which we live in. 
thank you for Keith and his work in contributing to these very important conversations and the work of being salt and light in this world. So thank you, Lord, for all that you do for us. Give us courage, give us perseverance to do the work of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter. Mm-hmm.